This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 123, for broadcast on the 18th of November 2020. Coming up on Space Time, Virgin planning its first New Mexico space launch for this month. Rocket Lab launches its fifth flight this year. And a second cable has failed at the Arecibo Observatory. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Virgin Galactic says it plans to undertake its first manned space flight from its new New Mexico spaceport sometime within the next few weeks. The company's winged rocket plane VSS Unity has undertaken most of its test flight regime from the Mojave Air and Spaceport near Los Angeles. Only two glide test flights have been carried out since the company moved operations to New Mexico, which will be Virgin Galactic's base for launching space tourists on brief trips to the edge of space from sometime next year. Virgin Galactic spaceship to spacecraft VSS Unity, as well as its now-destroyed predecessor Enterprise, a third vehicle now under construction which is expected to roll out during the first quarter of next year, and a planned fourth vehicle, are all expanded versions based on the design of the original Burt Rutan scaled composite Spaceship One spaceplane, which won the X Prize in 2004 by becoming the first privately built reusable manned spacecraft to reach 100 kilometres in altitude, the official start of space, and repeat the achievement within two weeks. Officially known as the Kármán line, this magic 100-kilometre high or 328,000-foot altitude was defined by theoretical physicist Theodore von Kármán in 1956 as the point where aerodynamic surfaces can no longer control an aircraft's lift, roll, pitch or yaw, forcing the use of reaction engines such as rockets to maintain course and manoeuvre. The flight profile will see Spaceship 2 take off horizontally from a conventional runway mounted under the center spar wing section of the unique twin fuselage four-jet engine-powered White Knight 2 mothership. The White Knight 2 then climbs to an altitude of 15.5 kilometers, roughly 50,000 feet, at which point it releases Spaceship 2, which after a few seconds of freefall, ignites its single hybrid rocket engine, accelerating the spacecraft to over Mach 3 or 4,000 kilometers per hour. The rocket engine burn lasts just 70 seconds before Miko or main engine cutoff. But that's enough momentum to allow the spacecraft to continue coasting on a ballistic trajectory up to that magic apex altitude of over 100 kilometers. At this point, passengers actually technically they're now astronauts, are treated to stunning views of the Earth below, the curvature of the planet and the delicate thin blue line of its protective life-saving atmosphere along the horizon, above which is the velvet blackness of space in broad daylight, together with the unique feeling of weightlessness, which will last about four minutes. As the spacecraft re-enters the atmosphere, its twin tail booms are raised into a vertical feathered position to increase drag, thereby helping to slow down the rate of descent. At around 23 kilometres in altitude or 70,000 feet, the tail booms are reconfigured back into their horizontal position, allowing the spacecraft to glide back to the surface for a conventional runway landing. At this stage, there's still no firm date exactly when passengers are likely to start flying. Nor a Virgin discussing pricing structures, although somewhere north of a quarter of a million bucks per seat is expected. Virgin Galactic's development suffered a major setback in 2014, 
when VSS Unity's predecessor, the VSS Enterprise, broke apart in midair, killing one of its test pilots after he released the feathering system during the ascent to space. Releasing the feathering system during ascent allowed it to lock in place, placing huge dynamic load on the airframe and causing the spacecraft to break apart. This is space time. Still to come, Rocket Lab launches its fifth flight this year and a second cable fails at the Arecibo Observatory. All that and more still to come on Space Time. There's still no launch date for Rocket Lab's first electron flight from its new Wallops Island launch complex on the Virginian mid-Atlantic coast. The mission, when it does fly, will carry a space weather instrument for the US Air Force's experimental monolith space test program. Monolith will demonstrate how well small satellites perform with large aperture payloads. The launch was originally planned for the second quarter of 2019 before being postponed till August 2020, then to September 2020 before another delay moved it to October the 30th, which is now also come and gone. Meanwhile, Electron missions are continuing to fly from Rocket Lab's Mahaya Peninsula launch complex on New Zealand's North Island East Coast. The 17-metre-tall two-stage launch vehicle's 15th mission, called in focus, deployed 10 SuperDove CESAT-2B Earth Imaging microsatellites into a 500-kilometre-high orbit. LD on mission. Uh, we are go for auto-sequence start at T-2 minutes. And I can confirm at this time LD is going to launch. Entering auto-sequence. Vehicles on internal power. Locks loose. Anti-gazering disabled. Stage 1 tanks are pressed, and stage 2 tanks are pressed as well. High flow engine purge is enabled. Deluge is activated. In 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Stage 1 propulsion is nominal. HVB battery discharge nominal. And there goes Electron for our 15th launch from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1 in New Zealand. We're T plus 50 seconds and Electron is approaching max Q, or maximum aerodynamic pressure. The moment during its ascent when the forces against the vehicle are at their strongest. You're at maximum dynamic pressure. Enter Chevron 2. Enter Chevron 3. AOS at Chatham Station. Next up will be three events in quick succession. We should hear the call for Miko as Electron's Rutherford engines throttle down to allow for stage separation before the engine on the second stage fires up to continue the mission to orbit. Entered stage one burnout detect mode. Separation confirmed. Stage two ignition confirmed. Successful Miko confirmed by mission control. Propulsion is continuing nominally on Electron's second stage at T plus three minutes into the mission, with the vehicle now travelling at several thousand kilometres an hour. Soon, the fairing halves will separate, and there they go. Electron has successfully jettisoned the fairing and is continuing nominally towards orbit. Electron is travelling through space at 9,000 kilometres per hour and is currently at an altitude of 153 kilometres. Each of the Stage 1 Rutherford engines weighs around 35 kilos, or 77 pounds, and comes in at around 800 millimetres, or just under 3 feet. A Stage 1 engine is capable of 24,000 newtons of thrust. Stage 2 is the same base engine with an extended nozzle. This vacuum nozzle increases the size of the engine twofold and adds an additional 1,000 newtons of thrust. 
Another quick check-in from Mission Control. We're T-plus five minutes into the flight, and the Electron is continuing nominally through its second stage burn. Electron's next action will be to swap out the onboard batteries for a fresh new one in what's called a battery hot swap. Let's listen in for the call of that swap. HBB battery discharge nominal, approaching hot swap in roughly 30 seconds. Throttling down. Hot swap successful. Battery ejection confirmed. AFDS is safe. And we've had a successful battery hot swap. Electron's second stage engine continues to propel the payloads towards their targeted orbit. Stage two propulsion still holding nominal. HVB battery discharge holding nominal. We're at T plus seven minutes since liftoff. In the next minute and a half or so, Electron's second stage Rutherford engine will power down before shutting off. We call this SECO, which stands for second engine cutoff, and this allows for a clean separation of the kick stage. Then, the kick stage will light its Curie engine and continue on its trajectory, coasting for a time before relighting its engine to carry the satellites closer to their optimal position orbiting Earth. Okay, entered stage 2 burnout detect mode. Guidance is in terminal, 20 seconds remaining. And seeker confirmed. The engine on stage 2 has shut down. We've just had confirmation that the kick stage has separated. The mission was Rocket Lab's fifth for this year. This is space time. Still to come... More damage as the second cable fails at the Arecibo Observatory. And later in the science report, production begins in Australia on a COVID-19 vaccine. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. Engineers are working to stabilise key equipment on the 305-metre Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico after another of the giant Rayleigh Telescope's main support cables suddenly snapped. The broken cable fell on the reflector dish below, damaging the parabolic dish and other nearby cables. This latest incident follows a similar failure on August the 10th, when an auxiliary cable broke slipping out of its socket and smashing hard under the reflector dish, also seriously damaging the telescope. Both cables were connected to the same support tower. No one was injured during either that or this latest incident, and engineers are on scene assessing the damage. A safety zone's now been set up around the dish, and only personnel needed to respond to the incident are allowed on site. Officials haven't determined exactly why the main cable broke, but they suspect it's related to the extra load the remaining cables have been carrying since the August cable failure. Mind you, engineers still don't know exactly what caused that original break. They've been closely monitoring the telescope's cables and platforms since the original failure, and they were tracking broken wires on the main cable that had just failed. Ironically, the observatory was expecting a team of engineers this week to begin temporary repairs related to the August failure. The University of Central Florida, which manages the facility under cooperative agreement with the National Science Foundation, had already retained several engineering firms following the initial August failure. Drones and cameras are now being used to continually monitor the structure. Repair crews hope to reduce tension on the remaining cables at the tower and install steel reinforcements to temporarily alleviate some of the additional load that's being distributed among the remaining cables until new cables, which are now being manufactured, can be installed. The Arecibo Telescope is one of the most powerful observatories on the planet. The facilities endured many hurricanes, tropical storms and earthquakes since it was first built more than 50 years ago. This is Space Time.
Today's edition of Space Time is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com space. That's tryexpressvpn.com space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com space to learn more. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. The Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, CSL, have started manufacturing the Oxford University AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine at its Melbourne plant. CSL is making at least 30 million doses of the AZD-1222 vaccine, which is now reaching the end of Phase 3 trials. The company is also producing the University of Queensland's protein-based COVID-19 vaccine candidate. The Australian government's also secured 50 million potential vaccine doses through new arrangements with companies including Novavax and Pfizer-BioNTech, both of which are currently in Phase 3 trials. Like Queensland's V451, Novavax is trialling a new protein-based vaccine which uses technology that's been around for decades. Officials at Novavax expect its candidate to complete its Phase 3 trials, which are based in the US and Mexico, by the end of the month. The COVID-19 coronavirus has now killed some 1.5 million people worldwide and infected some 53 million others since first spreading out of China exactly a year ago. Scientists have discovered that being exposed to cannabis in the womb may negatively affect children's mental health in later childhood. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are based on data from 11,489 children, 655 of whom had been exposed to cannabis prenatally. Researchers found that cannabis exposure was linked to mental health issues such as attention, thought and social problems during middle childhood, even after other risk factors were accounted for. A new study warns that mega droughts lasting two decades or longer are likely to increase because of climate change. The findings by the University of Queensland suggest that climate change will lead to increased water scarcity, reduced winter snow cover, more frequent bushfires and greater wind erosion. The team engaged in paleoclimatology, the study of past climates, to see what the world would look like as a result of global warming over the next 20 to 50 years. Scientists analysed geological records from the Emean period between 129,000 to 116,000 years ago, which they considered to be a good proxy for what we're likely to expect in a hotter, drier, climate-changed world. They found a similar amount of warming associated with mega-drought conditions all over southeastern Australia, which prevailed for centuries, sometimes more than a thousand years, and with El Nino events most likely increasing their severity. The warmth in that period was in response to orbital forcing, the effect on climate of slow changes in the tilt of Earth's axis and the shape of Earth's orbit around the Sun. Of course, today's heating is being caused by high concentrations of man-made greenhouse gases, but the end results are the same. A new study has found that coffee could lower your risk of colorectal cancer. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looked at a large group of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, which showed that the consumption of a few cups of coffee a day was associated with a longer survival rate and a lower risk of the cancer worsening. 
The findings, based on data from a large observational study nested in a clinical trial, are in line with earlier studies showing a connection between regular coffee consumption and improved outcome for patients with non-metastatic colorectal cancer. The authors found that in 1,171 patients treated for metastatic colorectal cancer, those who reported drinking two to three cups of coffee a day were likely to live longer overall and had a longer time before the disease worsened compared to those who didn't drink coffee. Participants who drank larger amounts of coffee, more than four cups a day, had an even greater benefit in these measures. And it seems the benefits held for both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee. Well, there's some bad news on the horizon for some Android users, with some of their favourite apps disappearing next year. And also, there's important news about a new security update for iOS users. With all the details on these stories and more, we're joined by Alex Saharov-Royt from ITY.com. If you have an older Android phone running Android 7.1 or lower, then from September next year, they'll stop working with probably about a third of the world's websites. And that's because a cross-licensing deal between two of the companies that issue SSL certificates is about to, to end. Because one of those companies has created its own SSL certificate. What's and doesn't an SSL want to certificate? Security sockets layer. This is an encryption layer that uh, when you see the HTTPS and you see the little lock symbol when oh, you're yeah, browsing yeah, yeah, yeah. certain websites on the internet, that is telling you that it's encrypted. And so what it means is that other people on the network can't see the information that is being sent. It's a bit like having a VPN whilst you're accessing public Wi-Fi. You've got some encryption there. So other people who are on the same Wi-Fi can't sniff the traffic and see passwords sent in clear text and uh, you know other images and other information. And so because a lot of websites now and a lot of browsers force you to use encryption or prefer you to use encryption, there will be a lot of websites from September in 2021 that will no longer recognize previously issued certificates because one of the two companies that is involved in this particular case is no longer going to license the certificate because it costs them money and they've got their own. But phones that have Android 7.1 or older don't recognize this new certificate, which was issued about you know four years ago. And so there is a workaround in that you can use Mozilla Firefox on your older Android device to connect because Mozilla Firefox uses its own bank of certificates, which is compatible. But the short version is Android phones do not get the same sort of regular updates that uh, iOS devices do. And there are plenty of people on, on older devices. And if they don't upgrade their phones, then they might find a lot of the websites they go to suddenly come up with a certificate error of some sort will no longer load properly. Now, the good news is that Android phones keep getting lower in price and every year they get you know, the technology that used to be top tier last year and sort of the technology gets better and better. And so there are pretty amazing Android phones that you can buy for two or $300 and up that are running Android 10 or will be running Android 11 pretty soon and are running versions of the Android operating system that are fully compatible with these security encryption certificates. So if you've got an older phone, you do have some time, just under a year, but it's definitely worth looking at upgrading to a newer time device. Time to upgrade and update. Time to upgrade. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you have to do this. I mean, I know people still running Windows XP, but they're really living on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of updates, people who are using iOS have a crucial update that they need to make sure they install. Absolutely. Look, people sometimes are a little bit sick and tired of how many times iOS seems to update. I mean, there were, there's updates, it seems, every few weeks, but not only is Apple releasing new features with its various updates, new emojis and new capabilities and upgrades to various features and functions on the phone. But they're also plugging security holes. And 
iOS is very good on security because Apple controls the App Store and they control the security and they control the actual device itself. They make everything, the hardware and the software. But Apple is not invulnerable to the bad guys finding bugs and errors that they could take advantage of to install malicious code on your device. Now, Apple is very quick to close these things down. And in iOS 14.2, which is also iPadOS 14.2, and you've got an update for your watch and an update for the Apple TV and for the HomePod and also updates for your Mac. But the 14.2 update closes three vulnerabilities that in conjunction are used by hackers to, and normally this has been used to target individuals as opposed to just being sprayed like buckshot across the internet. But they allow an attacker to send something to your phone, you visit a website, the little bug is there, and then they can install malicious software onto your device. So installing 14.2 closes this particular security vulnerability. But because a lot of people are still using iOS 12, I mean, a minuscule number compared to the amount of people that are using you know, very old versions of Android, most people with iOS will up, update. I mean, the phone prompts you to do so. It does it automatically uh, in most cases. That in many cases, it does it automatically, although you can turn that off. But Apple has also launched a 12.4.9 update for older iPhones like the iPhone 6 and older iPads that could go to iOS 13. And all devices that were on iOS 13 could also go to iOS 14. So, you know, Apple is looking after some of its older users and they did this about a year ago when there was an update for GPS on some of the older iPads and phones that couldn't work with GPS once the GPS reset itself to sort of start its date from the beginning again. You can look up online and find out the story behind that. But Apple put out an update that allowed the GPS on those older devices to keep on working. So not only has Apple updated its most recently obsolete devices, but current line and that's an important thing because, you know, if people are using older devices that can't be updated, well, those are no longer safe to use. I mean, look, people say, oh, I'm just going to use it for the for phone calls and for text messages. And for the average user, that's okay. But if, if you're relying on your phone to do banking or, you know, to log into things securely, then you must make sure you have the latest updates. But most of them will just update what's known as over the air. Mm. So you just go to settings, general, uh, and then software update. And if there's an update, it'll tell you. And then you plug your phone into power and update it over your Wi-Fi. And if you're worried about exactly what you're running, go to about. That's right. If you go to settings, general, and about, in that list, it will tell you details about your phone, including which version of iOS you're currently running. I mean, for some people, I just helped them upgrade last week to 14.1. And it seems like a week or two later, it's up to 14.2. There are a bunch of cool enhancements. There's even an enhancement to the magnifier, something you have to go into settings and then control center to switch on. When you swipe up or swipe down, depending on your iPhone, to go into this magnifier mode, which is very handy for looking at you know, very small writing on medicine bottles and tiny writing on menus. It's uh, much easier to use than the camera for doing the same sort of thing. And you can detect people, you can detect objects, you can zoom in and zoom out just by sliding a slider. And there's lots of cool things. There's plenty of articles online that explain this. But it's definitely of crucial importance to install 14.2 if you have a compatible iOS device. And that's Alex Zaharov-Royt from ITY.com. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. 
or by becoming a space-time patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more Space Time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 